Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Open your Bibles. We're going through the book of James, chapter 2. When you buy a new car, they give you a manual that shows you all the different functions of the dash and the buttons and all of the stuff that that automobile will do. And you probably look at it pretty closely, especially when you're trying to change the clock on the radio. Now they make it where it's idiot-proof, where it'll do it itself. If you think of James, it's almost like a manual for a new Christian. These Jewish Christians had come to know Jesus. They'd come out of Judaism. They were coming out of legalistic religious activities. And now they've been set free by meeting Jesus. And now the half-brother of Jesus tells them, now this is how you live it. It will affect your life. I read of a secretary, a pastor secretary, who picked up the phone and heard a very countrified southern voice on the other end saying, I want to talk to the tall hog at the trough. (laughs) Well, she was a little puzzled. She said, excuse me, and he said, I want to talk to the tall hog at the trough. Well, she didn't realize the man wanted to talk to the pastor, and she was a little indignant and said, look, if you want to talk to our pastor, you will have to address him properly. You need to call him pastor or brother, but certainly cannot refer to him as the tall hog at the trough. He said, well, I'm sorry. I just wanted to donate $100,000 to the church. The secretary promptly replied, you, can you hold the please? I think the big pig just walked in the door. It's amazing how we can cater to people, isn't it? We call that prejudice or favoritism. Sometimes it's called bigot, bigotry. And when you treat somebody that way, especially bigotry or prejudice, it's both an attitude and an action. You think you're superior to someone else or someone else is inferior to you and that leads you to treat them in a prejudicial fashion. And all of us like to say, well, I'm not a bigot. I'm not prejudiced. I'm not showing favoritism. But we're not always totally objective. And I'm here to tell you that all of us are guilty at some point of being prejudiced or showing favoritism. And it wasn't just a problem. It's not just a problem today. It was a problem in James's day. After all, it was a new church. It was people were young in the faith. Jesus had gone back to heaven. And, and so he's showing believers how that your life is changed when you meet Jesus. Now notice, I'll read along. and You, you follow along as I read in chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory, with partiality or with favoritism or prejudice. 
For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. You do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty." For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We tend to think that prejudice is all about race, but in this case, it was about affluence and achievement, not necessarily of ancestry. However, the principles and truths found right here apply to any kind of partiality, especially from Christians, from believers. We're the ones whose lives have been changed by Jesus. We have been washed clean by the blood that's been applied to our sin. We have him living in us, the Holy Spirit living in us, and we're supposed to be different, especially in the way that we treat other people. So James gets right to the point. The first thing he mentions is inconsistency. You don't judge a book by its cover. You've heard that phrase before. Notice the word partiality in verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality or with favoritism. And that Greek word comes from two words. It means the face and to hold or grab, to grab hold of a person's face. It means to judge somebody purely by the outward appearance or outward circumstances. And when he says, do not hold, it's a prohibition that says, stop trying to maintain your faith as a Christian and be prejudiced. You can't do both. It's not, it's not accurate. It's hypocritical. You can't claim to love Jesus and be partial to other people. He's saying, when you truly have faith in Jesus, you're not going to judge another human being by what you see on the outside. And we've all done it, haven't we? In fact, if every human being was a book, every book would have the same thing on the cover. It would say, made in the image of God. We all have worth but we seem to judge people by what we see on the outside. And there was a judge who was trying to select a jury for a trial, and everyone kept giving excuses. Don't you love to get those jury summons? And yet we're, we try to do our civic duty, but we're hoping we don't get picked. But in this particular day, the judge 
his patience was running thin because everyone was giving excuses of why they couldn't serve. And he looked at one prospective juror and he said, why can't you serve on the jury? And the man said, your honor, I'm prejudiced and I'm biased. The judge said, why? He said, he, and so he pointed to a man in a suit and he said, I took one look at that man and I was convinced he is guilty because he looks guilty. And the judge says, you're an idiot. That man is not the defendant. He's the attorney for the defendant. <laughs> you see, the word favoritism or partiality is a word that was evidently invented by the New Testament writers because it's plural. And it means there are different acts, A-C-T-S, acts of favoritism. So how do we judge other people? Well, I've already mentioned once, we judge people by their appearance. Have you ever heard the phrase, clothes don't make the man or woman? Well, here in verse 2, it says, what if a man comes in with gold rings? The, the Greek says, gold-fingered man. In those days, you could rent rings so that you would go in and you would look affluent. And he said, if a man comes in and he's got rings all over his finger and you treat him differently, or if he comes in in fine apparel, shiny clothing, or, and then another person comes in in filthy clothes or vile raiment, depending on your translation, that's dirty or filthy or shabby or worn. He says you're judging them by how they look. Now, you've heard the phrase, clothes don't make the man, but it's probably not the clothes that make the man or the woman, but the clothes that make our opinion of the man or woman. You see, what they're wearing doesn't mean that's who they are. But we sometimes make that judgment, don't we? We, we do it. You've already looked around this room. You know the people who are more sinful than you just by looking at them, don't you? You really don't. There was a young farmer whose combine during the harvest season broke down, and he was headed to the town to get a part for his tractor, and he saw a lady whose car was broken down, and the radiator hose had burst, and so he stopped and took that radiator hose off, and he said, ma'am, I'll get that for you. I'm headed to the parts store. He went to town, got it, repaired her car, was headed back to his pickup, and she said, wait a minute, sir, I want to pay you. And he said, no, ma'am, maybe one day my old truck will quit and you can give me a lift. And that's when she took stock of him. The farmer had been working on his combine all day, and he'd crawled under her car twice, and it had hadn't had time for a haircut in months. And she said, young man, you better take the money. I wouldn't pick somebody who looks like you up. <laughs> we judge people by the way they look. I don't know who wrote this, but they said the longest leap in the world is to jump to a conclusion. And we do. We look at people, what they're wearing and their outward appearance, and we immediately jump to conclusions. And we really don't have any right to do so. Another way that we judge people is by their achievements. In verse 3, it says, you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes. You sit here in a good place, and the poor man, you sit over here. Just get out of the way. You see, this rich man appeared to have something. The poor man probably didn't appear to have anything, and he says, you pay attention to them. You have respect to them. You show favor upon them. And a lot of times, we respect somebody who's the CEO of a company a lot more than somebody who might work for that person just based on their achievement and the 
the, the way they've climbed the ladder. There are people that nobody knew about until they achieved something, and then all of a sudden we treat those people who achieve something. I got to confess to you, I, I kind of feel sorry for Patrick Mahomes. He'll never be the same. He's a good guy. I, I'm not belittling him. But now that he's achieved what he has, he'll never be able to live like he did, ever. Because people treat people differently. And that would be for anybody who's achieved. We also judge people by their ancestry. Where'd they come from? What is their race? Are they from, you ever heard this? Are they from old money or new money? <laughs> I've never had any old money. Mine doesn't stay around long enough to be old. I know what they mean. Did they inherit money from somebody that they had? I, especially over in East Texas. I can remember where they're from old money. And, and if you lived in East Texas, you'd be over 30 years, and they'll still say, you're still a newcomer here. You're not from around here. Where are you from? We look at people of one color one way and another color another way, but I want to tell you, did you know that from the very beginning, God proved himself to be non-discriminatory to people based on their outward appearance? Think about it. Tell me what color was Adam and Eve. You don't know. Nobody does. The Bible doesn't say. Now, genetics point to the proper, greater probability that our first parents had darker skin because that is the dominant gene in skin color. But every time you see a picture of Adam and Eve or a painting of them, what color are they? What about Jesus? Jesus was a Middle Easterner. He was Jewish. Every time we see a picture of him, he's white. But the chances are he had olive-colored skin. And there's, there's a greater point to this. The reason why God doesn't bother to tell us what color Adam and Eve is is because God doesn't look at the outward appearance. Adam and Eve didn't have value because they were part of any particular race except the human race made in the image of God. But we judge people immediately, sometimes by the way they look, by the color of their skin, by their ancestry, what country they're from, or whatever. We judge people by their affections. What do they like? What do they dislike? I've seen friendships broken over football teams. I got a Greek word for that. That's stupid. <laughs> really? We all have different likes and dislikes. But we judge people, oh, and do I dare? Do I dare throw in the word Politics. Oh, if you voted for that person, I've already made a judgment about you. But you really don't know their heart, do you? The word partiality is used in Romans 2.11, for there is no partiality with God. Ephesians 6, 9, and you masters do the same thing to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in the heaven and there is no partiality with him. 
Colossians 3.25, but he who does wrong will be repaid for the wrong which he has done, and there is no partiality. Verse 4 says, you've shown partiality among yourselves, and you become judges with evil thoughts. You judge people, and you really aren't qualified to judge people. That kind of behavior involves the wrong mixture and the wrong motives and evil thoughts. It's one thing when you see a brother or sister overtaken in a fault and they're headed down the wrong path and you're trying to keep them from making a bigger mistake and draw them back on the right path with the Lord. That's not judging anybody. But when you make an opinion or a, a judgment about somebody based on any of these outward fact, uh, factors, then, then you're mistaken. I could add one more to this that I didn't put in that outline. We judge people by their age. Older people tend to look down their nose at the inexperienced younger people, and younger people tend to look down their nose at the old-fashioned old people. When in reality, we need both. You need the wisdom of the old and the energy of the young. And the young folk people are smarter than you give them credit for. Life magazine, back when it was still being published, did a photo essay. And they took people off the street, homeless people, and got some CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And they photographed all of them without any clothes except a towel wrapped around them. Big enough to be modest. And the amazing thing was, you could not tell who was who. When they all had the towel around them, you couldn't tell the homeless person from the Fortune 500 CEO. My friends, we are in no position, and we're not qualified to ever judge someone else. Prejudice is just a, it's not just a weakness, it's a wickedness. And it's not just a problem, it's a poison. And when you judge other people on anything on the outside and you ignore the inside, you're doing something that God doesn't even do. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And you remember Peter, who was with Jesus, and after Jesus left, Peter was one of the leaders of the early church, and he still wanted to hang out with his Jewish brothers. He just couldn't get it in his head that the gospel was for the Gentiles, the unclean. And, uh, and Jewish, think about the way he was raised as a Jewish person. A lot of times they were taught that Gentiles were nothing good but for the fuel to fuel the fires of hell. Until Paul confronted him. And then in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. It is inconsistent with born-again believers to be prejudiced. He also says, he reminds us of the impartiality in verse 5. Do you realize who that person is? Prejudice is when a first-class citizen is thrown on the junk heap of second-class citizenship. Several years ago, I read of a scientist 
who told us that when you take all of the, the, the uh, water out of the human body, you're not worth much. You're worth a couple of dollars of chemicals. Y'all remember? Y'all heard that? Well, I've got some great news for you. You're worth more than you thought. Because David Sadoof, a professor at the University of Washington, has significantly upped the worth of a single human. He said that the typical 150-pound human body has 10,200 units of the clotting agent prothrombin, if I'm saying that correctly, which would sell on the open market for $30,600. And our bodies contain 40 grams of myoglobin, another blood component which would bring in excess of $100,000. So those two blood compounds alone would make each of us worth at least $130,600. And that's not counting those of us who weigh more than 150 pounds. Some of us pretty valuable, aren't we? <laughs> Do you realize who that person is? First of all, they're chosen by God. It's what it says in verse 5. Has God not chosen? And, and that word is written in such a way that it says God has chosen for himself. Now listen to this. He did not just settle for you. Some of you are thinking, you know, I, I know I'm born again. I'm, I'm a believer in Christ, and I, I've been saved, but, you know, God let me in. He settled for me because I'm not nearly as important as somebody else. That's not true. God doesn't settle on anybody. He chose us. He saved us. He wants the whole world to be saved. And you need to understand that those people who are chosen by God, and, and sometimes there are, and if, let's just face it, the, the ultra-wealthy, now all of us are wealthy compared to the first century Christians. But I'm talking about in our culture, when you think of wealthy people, you're probably thinking of those billionaires and, and those folks, multimillionaires. Do you know very many of them or know of very many of them that love Jesus? There's a, there might be one or two. I don't know. But all indications are not too many. And he says, but those who are not distracted by wealth are rich in faith. There's nothing more valuable that you have than your salvation in Jesus Christ. Because when you draw your last breath, it doesn't matter how much you have or don't have, what matters is are you born again? Do you know Jesus Christ when you go? People who are not wealthy don't trust in temporal things. Now, th this is a fictitious letter. Have you ever thought about the way we look at people, the way we would choose people? Have you ever thought about the way Jesus chose the disciples? Now, if he used our methods today, we would give them personality tests and profiles and determine the potential of the possible employees and leaders. Well, here's a fictitious, a fic 
fictitious fictional is what I'm trying to say. I can't fictitional. That's not even a word. Fictional letter. It's not true. It's fiction. Got it? In case some of y'all just woke up and you hear me read this letter. That Jesus could have administered to the 12 potential disciples if we were doing it today. It's addressed to Jesus, son of Joseph, woodcrafter, carpenter shop, Nazareth, Galilee. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken the battery of tests and we've run them through our computers. It is the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, educational, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would suggest that you continue your search for persons with experience and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has no leadership skills at all. The two brothers, James and John, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it's our duty to inform you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. <laughs> James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, have radical leanings and registered high manic depressive scores. Only one of the candidates shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, who meets people well, has a keen business mind. He has contacts in high places and is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely yours, Jordan Management Consultants, Jerusalem, Judea. That's not how God picks people. Not only are they chosen by God, but they're a child of the king, heirs of the kingdom. What a future. Your father's a king. <laughs> you're sitting by, you, know, you never know who you're sitting by, do you? You're sitting by a child of the king, royalty. You're sitting by royalty. And yet you don't even realize who you're sitting by. A seminary student came into church and took a seat by a lady he did not know. And when he saw who was on the program to speak, he said, oh, no. And the lady said, what's the matter? He said, well, the guy who's speaking today, I've had him for a class, and he's exceptionally boring, arrogant, egotistical. And the lady said, do you know who I am? He said, no. He said, I'm Mr. Boring's wife. <laughs> the student asked, well, do you know who I am? And she said, no. And he said, thank the Lord. <laughs> You're sitting by, you may not know the person's name, but you're sitting by somebody who's chosen by God, who's a child of the king. Every person we meet has worth in the sight of God. He mentions the inconsistency and the impartiality, but then notice the incompatibility. He said, what you see is not always what you get. Verse 6 says, the rich people drag you down, they oppress you, they exploit you, they dominate you, and they blaspheme the name. 
verse 7. Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you were called? The poor, whatever that means, and I've told you how rich you are. You're in the top 1% of the world, most of you. But in this day, the poor usually were exploited by the wealthy. I've been in churches, little churches, where, especially in smaller communities, where the people who were successful in business were usually elevated to leadership in the church. There's a reason I don't know what people give. I don't ever want to know what people give because I don't want to try to treat anybody any differently than anyone else. But I can tell you that I've been in places where some of the more affluent people of that community, if they didn't get that their way in the church, they would threaten by saying, well, I'm not going to give anymore. And they would oppress the leadership. And it doesn't say wealthy people cannot follow Christ. It just says that most of them are more distracted. You remember the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, that he wouldn't follow Jesus because he wouldn't give up his riches. But he said, you're, you're thinking, and what he's saying, but let me put this in a different way. He's saying, you're thinking, if you can just get the wealthy people in your church, you're going to be okay. But what you see is not always what you get because they can be the ones that oppress you and they can be the ones that actually blaspheme the name of Jesus. Chuck Colson wrote a book called Loving God and in that book, he told of a famous gangster named Mickey Cohen. And Mickey Cohen was supposedly, supposedly made a profession of faith in Christ and it made the papers, it made the media. It was a big deal when a gangster gets saved. The only problem was none of his life changed. He continued to be involved with his mafia connections and all his underworld activities. And when he was confronted for the need to change, he said, couldn't God use a Christian gangster? In other words, he wanted Christianity to adapt to his lifestyle instead of him adapting to Christianity. The wealthy of James's day were mostly the Romans. And the Romans considered the faith that you and I hold dear, they considered it wild and cannibalistic. They misinterpreted when they heard Christians talking about communion, taking the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Jesus. They called them cannibals. And up until the time when Constantine was converted, supposedly, in A.D. 316, the name Christian was synonymous with outcast and psychopath and anything detestable. And yet James is saying, listen, you don't treat people who come in and look affluent any differently than anyone else because that is not the way Christianity is. In fact, if you... He's saying what you think you want actually may be a hindrance down the road. To me, it doesn't matter what you have as long as you love Jesus and follow him and follow the direction from the Lord. It's incompatible to do that. And the last thing he ends with is an indictment. Just who do you think you are? I know that sounds a little rough, but verse, 13, verse, uh, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, now that royal law, he quotes it here, 
love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.18. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. Now, he didn't pull any punches, does he? You're convicted by the law as a transgressor. We're the ones that put degrees on sin. Now, listen to me. In the eyes of God, all sin is horrendous. There are different consequences to sin. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you're holding, you're, you're hanging off of a cliff and you're holding on to a chain. And that each link of that chain represents a different sin. Lying, stealing, greed, covetousness, murder, adultery, whatever. And you're hanging on. If one of those links breaks, what's going to happen to you? You're going to fall to your death. Does it matter which link it is? No. <laughs> but see, a lot of people think, well, I've not committed this sin and this sin, so I'm still pretty good. But in the eyes of God, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then we sort of put degrees on it like, well, I, I know I've been saved, but, some, but this sin is not as bad as this sin. At least I haven't murdered or committed adultery or whatever. I, I, I might have told a lie or whatever. But, but James is saying it's all sin, and we all need God's mercy. And if you need God's mercy, and I do, we need to show God's mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment, the last phrase says. All of us are going to be judged. Now, Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. One of those judgments has already been taken care of if you know Jesus. You don't have to worry about the great white throne judgment when the book of life will be opened and those whose name is not written in the book of life according to Revelation 20 will be cast into the lake of fire. You've already covered that. You've, you've asked God to forgive you. You believe Jesus died and rose again, that his blood was sinless. It covered our sin. He rose again. You place your faith in, in Jesus Christ to make him Lord of your life. His spirit, God's spirit lives in you. You don't have to worry about that judgment. It's been taken care of. But the other judgment we're going to face is more about motive and what we have done in the Lord and in his work and was our motive pure and did we do it with the right attitude. And let me tell you something. When we stand before that Bema seat, you know what you're going to want more than anything? Mercy. We don't have to be afraid but all this stuff that we think we're so good at, when we stand before the eyes of God, we're gonna, he's going to see right through all of that. And I'm going to need a lot of mercy. I don't know about you. I'm going to need an extra dose. Because everything I've done hadn't always done with been with the purest motive. And James is saying, this is the way you have to treat other people. With mercy. 
Give them a benefit of the doubt. We don't, you don't want God judging you by external standards. Do you want God to judge you by your looks? No. By the time we see him, our looks aren't going to be very good. <laughs> the fact is, God's going to look at our heart. That's how we look at people. Nowadays, people do all kinds of things to themselves. All cultures are different. All generations are different. Some people are easier to look at than others because of stuff that they've done. But we don't judge them because we don't know their heart. And we don't know why they've done what they've done. We don't know. We can't know. And James is saying, you look at people with your Jesus glasses on. Because Jesus looked at all people with love. Yeah, he had to be tough with some of them, but he still loved them all. I want to close with this parable. It's not in the Bible, but it speaks volumes for churches today of what you and I are about. Listen to this. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, they went out day or night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station so that it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the work of support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. And now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. And they redecorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club. Less of the members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club decoration, and there was a liturgical life-saving boat in the room where initiation took place. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boats loaded with cold and wet and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some had different color skin. The beautiful new club was considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where the victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as they were thought to be unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal life of the club. Some members insisted on life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station, but they were finally voted down 
and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast, and they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same change that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that coast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. We are in the life-saving business. We don't save anybody. Only Jesus does that. But the day that we ever don't allow someone to come in this place because of the way they look, is the day we quit being a life-saving station. Folks, except by the grace of God, there's no telling where you and I would be today. And you need to remember that you were saved by the grace and mercy of God. And when people come into our midst and they may not talk like we do, they may not look like we do, they may not smell like we do, they may not know any of the church language but they need Jesus, and written across them on the cover of that book is made in the image of God. So all of us have some repenting to do. We've all been judgmental, but I've got good news for you. God still loves you. God still will forgive you. And those of you who think, I've done so much in my life, God would never have me. Besides, church people don't like me. Well, get in line. There's a lot of church people who don't like me either. But I want to tell you, don't worry about the hypocrites in the church that's full of them. Everybody in the church is a hypocrite somewhere. But know that there's a God who loves you dearly doesn't care what your background is. It doesn't care the sin that you've committed. He will love you and forgive you and give you eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And you and I, when we stand before God, we don't need justice. We need mercy more than anything. If you don't know Jesus, you don't have to join Southcrest. Listen, this is a hospital for sinners, and it, it's, if, if you're looking for a perfect church, you keep moving, because I know these people, <laughs> and they know me, and we ain't perfect, are we? Just a hospital for sinners. But if you don't know Jesus, you don't have to join this church. You've turned from your sin, ask God to forgive you, believe that Jesus died for your sin, and invite him into your life and commit your life to him by faith, by trust. God says you'll be saved. His spirit will live in you. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, thank you for the attention of this wonderful people. And I pray most of all for those who may be watching online. They may see this on television. They may be in this very room, but they don't know you as their Savior. Because they feel like that maybe they're not good enough or they have done too much wrong. But Lord, you let them know how you can and will forgive them and change their life. Give them peace and a, and a purpose. I pray that people would come to know you, Lord. I lift up our own congregation and the, and the born-again believers in this room. 
Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we've been judgmental because somebody was not like us. Help us to put our Jesus glasses on and see people the way you see them. I pray for those that do need a church home. If this is it, you bring them. I know that there are those who've been born again, who've been saved and haven't been baptized. The, the first act of obedience to you, to profess you before others. So Lord, whatever it is during this time, you're speaking to the hearts of people. I pray you'll bring them to you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. 